Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I've got a special guest joining me today to discuss the Ukraine conflict live from the ground, unlike what we're seeing in the corporate media, which is a common thread that we see today. And that is Eva Bartlett. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad yeah, we finally get a chance to talk. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on, especially since you tend to be on the ground, actually honestly covering what tends to go on. And, and this is something that we've always highlighted when we have a conversation with you, Eva, which is that, you know, the, the, the dying investigative journalists or the lack thereof in the corporate media and how your coverage always tends to, you know, conflict what's being shown because you honestly cover what's going on. So I'm excited to talk with you today about what you're seeing on the ground and how that conflicts and contrasts with what we're seeing in the corporate media. So in general, I'd like to start with the, what you had a conversation recently calling out what you said you were on a kill list in Ukraine. And we've been covering a lot the independent journalism going on on the ground in Ukraine and how it's been a focal point long before this recent conflict, the recent rise in the coverage yeah, of yeah. it, where even the corporate media and the U.S. government would call out that journalists in Ukraine were the most dangerous job in Ukraine, they called it, before we got here today. So I'd like to start mm -hmm. off with this interesting, the fact that that coverage, first of all, is no longer there despite it being the same entity, the same government, and so on. And now that you're covering it, what's going on on the ground, that you've found yourself on a kill list of journalists. So I'd like you to talk about that, as well as what you've seen from other journalists on the ground in Ukraine or heard from other civilians and other discussions there. Yeah, so I, I want to note first, because I'm aware my detractors are saying, oh, but Eva's saying she just got put on this kill list. And I'm not saying that, actually. And, and I've already written about it like uh, a year ago or so. And it was I was made aware of it by a friend, maybe, I don't remember, maybe two or three years ago. So I'm not claiming this is a new thing. The only new thing um, is that my entry has been updated to include recent activity I've been involved in. But like the, uh, the I've been put on... And the other thing I, I will um, also say is, you know, detractors will say, well, it's not a kill list. You're you're exaggerating. Well, it's it's on a website that translates from Ukrainian to English into peacemakers. I can never pronounce it. It's like Mirotkovets or something like that. Um, and it, it does contain thousands of names, uh, not only journalists and not not only uh, foreign journalists, but more specifically Ukrainian journalists, Ukrainian uh, members of parliament, opposition members, Ukrainian activists, Ukrainian civilians and then foreign journalists as well. And uh, I, I don't know the numbers. I don't know that it's known what the numbers are of people who have disappeared or are known to have been killed after being placed on this list. But there, there are many. And I did write about it. Um, I, I can pull that article up, but or you can share it perhaps uh, later on on screen. But I, I know at the time when I wrote about it, um, uh, some Ukrainian uh, person involved with the list was boasting about hundreds of people having repercussions after being on the list. And I know one man, um, Oles Buzena, I think his name was, uh, he had all his personal information listed, including his address, etc., um, so if you if you list that amount of details, then the crazies and there are many in Ukraine, not everybody, of course, but, you know, Ukraine is does have a Nazi problem as much as corporate media tries to hide it. Um, they will act upon it. Uh, and so or or the, the Secret Service will act upon it, whomever. And, and of course, it, depending on where you are in the world, any kind of uh, person with these extremist views could uh, take action against what they perceive as a threat to Ukraine. Now, my my um, my threat to Ukraine is uh, at the time that I was put on the list, it would have been that I went to Crimea and spoke with people there via translator, of course, 
to ask their opinion about their having um, uh, had that referendum to join Russia. Actually, when I was there, uh, what I was told by Crimeans is that they returned to Russia, making the point that they were always historically a part of Russia. And I was told they had wanted to do so to return to Russia for a long time um, so, and that they were not forced, as Western media claimed, um, into having if what the Western media claimed it was like a fake re- referendum. They were forced at gunpoint to, to vote. And that was not the case. So my crime uh, being put on this list might have been having written about that. It might have been going to Donbass in 2019 and trying and trying to highlight the um, the hell that civilians were living uh, under Ukrainian bombings in violation of the Mexico Accord and with Ukraine using prohibited heavy weapons on civilians and civilian infrastructure. Um, But, you know, I did that as uh, I went there and I wrote that for Mint Press News. I did that completely independently of Russia or anybody. Uh, I did that as a journalist using my own uh, funding to go there. And I did that because I believe that these people's um, voices should be heard and their stories should be told and that the fact that Ukraine is terrorizing them should be emphasized. So I can I can see why that would piss Ukraine off. But, you know, to go as far as call me a threat to state security or whatever their wacko wording is, is, is quite extreme. Uh, one other point to note about that list is that President Zelensky um, is aware of it. But uh, and I, I wrote about this when I wrote my op-ed for RT uh, on this list. But he basically said, well, you know, he doesn't want to interfere with the website. I'm paraphrasing because that would be interfering with media uh, and that would be censorship of, you know, free speech or something like that. And it's just like, how ironic can it be? Because that's precisely what this list is doing. It's uh, basically saying, you know, stop writing, stop speaking about Ukraine or or Crimea or the Donbass or you're going to be killed, you know, or maybe not even, or you're going to be, you know, your name's on Achilles because you have spoken out. And even if I were to stop speaking about it today, uh, I'm sure that my name will stay there permanently. I don't, you know, and it's not intimidating to me because uh, I'm not going to be intimidated. Uh, You know, I've already faced my own mortality, but the point being this should not exist, you know, and my government would never have my back. Neither a Canadian or U S government would have my back would in any way protect me because they are allies of Ukraine and they're funding uh, the extremists in Ukraine. And they're quite happy to let them murder Ukrainian civilians and, and foreigners that that get in their way, pesky little us. So there's that. But yeah, I must emphasize again, this is not just about me. This is not about other journalists. It's, it's also very much about Ukrainian civilians um, and citizens and Ukrainian journalists. And people should keep that in mind when they hashtag stand with Ukraine. They're standing with a, a, a non-democratic state that um, will basically silence in any way, whether it's throwing them in prison and torturing them or uh, assassinating them or disappearing them in other means. Uh, any voice that uh, any person that voices any sort of criticism of Ukraine. So that's essentially what it's about. And uh, I, I will just make one more point, if I may. Uh, so it, my my entry has been updated to include the fact that I participated in an international tribunal on Ukrainian war crimes. And I did so in the capacity as a journalist, not as a judge, as some detractors tried to claim. Um, clearly, I'm not that. Uh, and I just spoke about my observations and about media uh, complicity in, in this this uh, war on the Donbass and the media is whitewashing it, et cetera, et cetera. And so my updated entry on the, on the, the kill list includes that I participated in this panel. Now, the interesting thing about this is that CBC, well, actually, first I'll say two independent Canadian uh, journalists reached out to me 
quite alarmed at the fact that I'm on it. And they were like, you know, we think this is very dangerous. You should contact your embassy. Although, you know, I don't, again, think my embassy will do anything to protect me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know, we want to talk to you about this and we want to highlight the issue. So I was, uh, you know, very grateful to them for being concerned. But then after that, I think they did probably reach out to the Canadian state-funded media, CBC, mm-hmm. uh, a, a notorious propaganda machine. I think they reached out to as much media as they could. Um, and so not long after that interview, maybe a week after, then I was contacted by some CBC um, hack who mm-hmm. wanted to talk not about the kill list, but about my participation in this um, tribunal on Ukrainian war crimes. And so what's interesting about that is, uh, in my opinion, there is little way this journalist, this hack, could have known that I participated in this tribunal, except that he had seen this uh, Ukrainian kill list entry on me. Because, um, as I've said uh, in previous interviews, I didn't broadcast it on my social media or my Telegram. Uh, I think at the time I didn't have a link to share or I got busy or something. So in my opinion, unless he's following the work of Maxime Grigoriev, who organized that tribunal, which I highly doubt he is, mm-hmm. he found he found out about my entry or he found out about my participation in that tribunal uh, because of the kill list. So instead of saying, hey, I'm, I'm really alarmed that you, my Canadian colleague, are on a kill list, he instead said, I want to talk to you about your participation in this tribunal. I, of course, ignored him because he doesn't deserve my time or anyone's mm-hmm. time, really. CBC is... Uh, not worthy of our time. But, you know, it just highlights how corrupt and how um, unprincipled and unethical CBC and most corporate media are. You know, they didn't care to address the issue at hand. Instead of they want, they wanted to get a soundbite from me that they could twist and cherry pick Mm -hmm. and make me look like any sort of blah, 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 denier kind of right. thing. Fill in the blank with whatever current propaganda talking points. You know, it, 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 to highlight exactly what you're saying there, there's a Canadian journalist that could that clearly at least cares less about the fact that a Canadian journalist is on a kill list of a foreign government than simply pointing out that you're tied to the thing they're trying to demonize. And this yeah. is the point you made earlier is this whole national security. It's the U.S. government and all these governments in the West do the same thing where, you know, it, it's it's okay to violate rights and to ignore the law as long as we say that they're the thing that we're pointing at. You know, national security risk because therefore she's this. Well, the rights still apply. You're you're still a human being with human rights and legal. You know, it's frustrating to see how how childish this becomes. You know, and 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 to the, the larger point about this, it, what's interesting is that this has been going on this entire time, as you as you well know, and we've talked about this. Here's an example that I shared. Vitaly Kim was a governor of this old blast. You can maybe pronounce that correctly for me. He openly discussed this, and this is RT covering it, of course, but this is on an RT. It's, it's, it's Ukraine 24, openly talking about how they will execute anybody, civilian, military, otherwise, they that they deem as supporting Russia. He openly says that, and he says, we don't hide from that. And he points to the blogger who was assassinated in his car and yes. says, That's, this was one of those things. And she nods and goes, yes, good, we got him. Like, this is a blatant representation of what you're talking about, and they pretend yeah. like that's not happening. It's, it's yeah, incredible. thank you. Thank you for making that point. I had heard of the blogger uh, and his murder, but I wasn't aware of this Vitaly Kim's uh, statement. So, yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. And, and there's more than that as well. There's examples, as you as you remember, probably from the beginning, there was the diplomat that was shot and they all tried to gaslight the conversation until they then admitted that he was executed, shot in the back of the head outside the courthouse because he was a traitor. Whatever that means, because whatever they claim that means, there's still isn't there supposed to be due process as in a democratic state, as they keep telling us. You know, right. so the bottom line is this is a real the real situation, and that they, there's there's obviously a real kill list that they're talking about, and that journalists like are on that list, and doesn't seem yeah. that any of the governments care. And I just think that's an important thing to highlight. Yeah, if, if, if I wanted to actually from there in general talk about 
the other, you know, the fake news representation that we're seeing in Ukraine that's being completely allowed and, and bolstered by these foreign governments that are in support of what's happening here. So we talked about in the past, our last conversation about the the, the burial sites, the graveyards, mm. where the actual, the actual uh, what would you call them, the people that bury the bodies, ultimately spoke on the record with you and said, nope, there's Ukrainians here. There's, there's, you know, everybody's here. This is it, you know, it's been here from before. And so you can speak to that if you'd like for maybe people that don't know that story. But I'd like to ask you about other situations you might've seen that are equally Fake news, lies, propaganda, misrepresentations. You know, we have all we all know the ghost of Kiev, or we should at this point, since they've admitted that was fake. But yeah. what other things are you seeing like that? Oh yeah, so just to touch back on the, the mass 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 grave uh, story was basically again, as Western media does hand, in hand, screaming the same um, uh, accusations suddenly overnight. You know, uh, citing the mayor of Mariupol who had fled Mariupol when the Russian military operation began, so he's no longer in the vicinity of Mariupol. He's no longer any sort of authority of what's going on. But of course, that's the way mass media works: is they don't have to provide evidence; they just provide he she says kind of claim or unnamed sources as we've discussed when we talk about Syria and they're doing it again with regard to Ukraine too um, but they, yeah they were quite uh, quoting this um, um, the, the mayor of Mariupol saying there were up to 9,000 bodies buried in a mass pit thrown into a mass pit rather uh, and you know claiming the, the Russians were trying to cover up their their crimes of murdering civilians um, and so, you know, you go to the place in question. Uh, I did not expect to see it. But if you expected to see it, you would have expected to see a vast pit, probably excavated with a bulldozer or something. And instead, what I saw, um, as, as you see in this uh, the screenshot, um, well, you actually don't see it there. You just kind of see it. But in the video that I, I filmed uh, and, and put out on my YouTube afterwards and Odyssey, of course, um, and I saw like rows of, of five at first, like mounds uh, uh, of each individual plot that were marked with either uh, a number or if, if names and date of births were given, then they were there as well. And then as I walked along, like it was like a long rectangular stretch, it narrowed to three and then two rows. And then it was interesting that at the very last, like just under a hundred of these uh, rows um, these plots were empty. So they were clearly uh, new graves dug uh, waiting for, you know, deceased to bury, you know, and I don't know practices in cemeteries in the West, but I, I think sometimes you will see empty graves waiting for newly deceased. And unfortunately, you know, people die around the world and they go to cemeteries and they're buried. Uh, but the interesting thing is too, that yes, as you mentioned, uh, the two grave diggers uh, that, were they said they were they were they said they were sorry responsible for burying everybody in, in this graveyard and what you're showing right now on screen that's Roman Kosser of my RT uh, colleague um, a courageous journalist who's been reporting from from here for eight years um, at great personal risk to his life by the way in some of the reporting he's done uh, what you're seeing here is these newly dug graves um, and then to the right yeah in that there in the distance you see a pre-existing graveyard and that's where we spoke to the two gentlemen and you can see well, my, I subtitled the video and you can see what they're saying that, yeah, the, they were buried. Um, each and each person was buried individually in a coffin. And they did say there were some Ukrainian soldiers buried there, too, because, you know, whereas they are well, technically the enemy, I suppose that they're still human beings and they were allotted the dignity of a proper burial. And they were indignant when uh, we raised the, the talking point from the West that this was a mass grave. You know, after I published this, I saw some comments like, well, no, those are just um, mounds uh, t on top of the mass grave. 
I mean, people actually think that Russia, first of all, did this mass grave and then went to the trouble of, of putting mounds on top of it. Uh, and now this defies logic, uh, Ryan, because a lot of Western journalists will say, well, it's impossible to go and report from there. So it, it, by that line of logic, why would Russia even bother to supposedly cover up a mass grave with a fake graveyard if no one's going to go there and see it in the first place, you know? The other thing to point out, and I think you can talk about the, I think you might have talked about it last time we spoke, the the company that provided the satellite imagery. But, you know, when you look at the photos that splashed Washington Post and other uh, mass media, to me, it seemed like those satellite photos could, if they wanted to, have been a lot clearer. Uh, They weren't very clear. I'm not an expert in technology, but it seems like if they had wanted to zoom in a lot more closely, they probably could have. And if they'd done so, then they would have seen exactly what I've depicted in the video. You know, they would have seen more clearly that this is not a mass pit, but they didn't because a blurry satellite image was enough to present as quote unquote evidence. Now this, this mayor and his assistant have been cited in many um, hoax stories since one of which, uh, I don't know, maybe it's been a few weeks or a month now. It was like 200 bodies found in the basement of an apartment building in Mariupol, mayor says, or assistant to mayor says. And again, they're not in, and they, this, this one, this article um, actually only gave like two lines to their claim. And then it went on to talk about other alleged Russian uh, crimes. So they didn't even, they didn't even bother with a photo this time to substantiate or try to substantiate their claims. They just said mayor says, or assistant says, and then they went on, you know, on some other tangent. And it's just like, you know, they don't even have to try anymore. They just make these claims, then run off. Um, Let me think of, uh, well, I can, let me, let me say one, one more recent one. And it's really insulting uh, to the people of the, of Donetsk, uh, because three days ago, you're aware, I'm sure, and your, your viewers, I hope I'm sure are aware, three days ago, Ukrainians uh, assaulted Donetsk like they haven't done since 2014. I've been that's what I was told. They they hit the city all over the city, specifically targeting residential areas, you know, apartment blocks, uh, warehouses, factories, markets, schools, hospitals, a, a kindergarten. Uh, and uh, they they did quite a bit of damage. They killed six people and injured tens. Um, they struck among the hospitals. They struck a maternity hospital, which and I'm going to make a point about in a second. But anyway, um, it was you know I'm 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 well accustomed to bombing from my days in Gaza and also in Syria, but specifically in Gaza where Israel can bomb when and where it wants to with whatever power and nobody holds it accountable. So it's not that I was um, alarmed by bombing, but it was that I was alarmed by the frequency of the bombing that I was hearing first from my room here. And then I went, went out on the street with some reporters and uh, it was pretty chaotic, the, you know, the bombing all over the city. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs put out a statement that I think it was like up to 300 um, rockets and uh, artillery were unleashed on the city in that, on that day, June 13th. And so what is really disgusting is, but not surprising, is the way the media spun it. Um, Well, first of all, media grossly downplayed it. I saw something today that said, like, um, Ukraine fired like three times in the city, which is just a gross understatement. But other media didn't talk about it at all. And other media actually said it was Russia bombing. Uh, And they said Russia was bombing Donetsk Oblast. And it was not Russia bombing. It was Ukraine. 
Um, so it, it's disgusting because these people, you know, have been suffering eight years, if you've, as you noted in your introduction, of Ukraine's bombing and, and war crimes. But then on this particular day, which was quite, um, I would say, traumatic for the people here, then to have the media turn around and say it was Russia doing is just so disingenuous, dishonest and disgusting. And now the point I wanted to make about the, the um, maternity hospital is why this should be front page news. Well, number one, it's a maternity hospital. There were patients inside. Thankfully, when the bombing started, they were taken down to the basement and sheltering there. So thankfully, no one died. But there were heavily pregnant women. And had they been up on the fifth floor where there's a delivery uh, room and uh, other important rooms, uh, then they could have been killed because a missile went, a Uragon missile went through the roof. Um, but the other point to make is that, okay, and also that this this is a war crime, and the UN did did note that this is a war crime, but in a very weak-worded st- sentence, like it's extremely troubling or it's very troubling or something like that, the assistant to the Secretary General said. But in March, all of media were screaming that Aleppo bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol. And the UN at that time, uh, the Secretary General himself came out with like, I think his statement was, this is horrific you know, and, and tweeted about it, uh, uh, Guterres or whatever his name is. Um, and, you know, all the media ran with this. And of course, uh, politicians in the West, um, crocodile teared and, you know, virtue signaled their outrage. But Russia presented uh, credible evidence um, that the strikes that occurred in the hospital were not airstrikes, as was alleged, that the explosives that um, occurred uh, at the hospital uh could not have been airstrikes due to the nature of the damage. The walls weren't taken down or something. But also, really importantly, that at the end of February, um, Azov and Ukrainian forces expelled the staff from the hospital and were using it as a military base. Uh, so, you know, media didn't report that. And it just none of the whole story made sense. And then later, this young uh, beauty model, Mariana, whose last name I don't know, uh, but she was heavily featured in the media because she was shown in footage um, claiming that, you know, she was one of the victims. And she later came out and said, like, look, that's, this is not what happened. I did not hear. None of us heard any airstrikes. It didn't happen. And we were filmed by some, I think it was AP reporter dressed in military gear or military uniform uh, without our knowledge, you know, and she totally refuted the allegations. So, but at the time, all of the world was indignant and blaming Russia. And now we have tangible evidence that Ukraine attacked not just the maternity hospital, but multiple hospitals in the city and, and not a peep, you know, not, yeah. not, not unsurprisingly. Let, let me, yeah. A couple points to add here. I mean, that, that's, that's so important to see the, 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 the way that this progresses. And, and I'll make a couple points about the burial, the same kind of discussion here, that this is what we saw with Ghost of Kiev, Snake Island, I mean, all these conversations. Oh, yeah. Or how about the gigantic one that just gets ignored that even right now it's recent as the human rights uh, chief, I believe her, whatever her title was, the woman that just got fired in Ukraine for, and now admitted completely fabricating from whole cloth the entire argument that Russian troops were raping people. And, and yet, yeah, that's still a fixture in the conversation right now. Yeah. So they just ignore when this happens, even when they're, when Ukraine admits it's not true, like goes yeah. to Kia. But in this case, the maternity hospital where she comes out and, you know, and later it reminds me of, of, of Omron or different situations. Yeah, in Syria, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. There's all these overlaps, the same intelligence propaganda, but going back to your burial conversation about the graveyard, same kind of thing where I, 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 I think I discussed this with our last interview where you can point out examples of other, other corporate media, in fact, even the same outlets now spinning the other side of the story, quoting the mayor in Mariupol saying, we buried those bodies in a mass grave. 
like saying that, but blamed it on Russia for killing them, but still cited that we buried them in those graves. So how can you then days later argue the opposite, right? It's, it's just outrageous. But to your point about Maxar Technologies, which is the CIA front, that's important to remember. And I covered this in a couple different shows. It, it, it's directly tied in multiple ways to the CIA. It is part of the, the it, in QTEL conversation. The person on the board is in part, you know, it's obvious a CIA cutout, in my opinion, and the data backs that up. And every single time we've had these examples, it's been their weird, fuzzy or, you know, inappropriate, you know, incomplete imagery of the of the uh, satellite images which is used as the primary point to make their argument. And it was even later proved that their satellites weren't even in position to be able to take those photographs of the date they said they did. I mean, the media just pushes right past all this stuff, you know, and this is verifiable information. But then finally to the point you made about what just happened, and then we can talk about more about that because this is really incredible to me. Actually, I want your opinion on this because what you, what we're highlighting here ultimately is that they are, you know, willful ignorance, choosing to ignore data because it does not align with what they just reported or vice versa. And that we're seeing an interesting contrast, interesting contrast after 10 plus years of ethnic cleansing and bombing and attacks in, in the Donbass region. We're now seeing an interesting situation where all of a sudden it looks like Reuters is like, oh, they say this happened, which is interesting because of, you know, separatists say, and you can get into the yeah. article. And the article basically says we can't even verify it happened, which is ridiculous, seeing as how there's obvious examples and we can prove it literally happened. But but nonetheless, my question is, do you find this strange? Because I haven't seen them even saying separate to say, ignoring any attacks on Donbass or Donetsk in this point. But why do you think they're suddenly pointing at it now? And, you know, continue your thoughts on the misrepresentation of it. Uh, I, I, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, I was working on, I have, I have footage from the, the maternity hospital. It's nothing groundbreaking, but I want to put it out anyway. Just everything mm-hmm. takes time, you know, as I've always said, because it, I'm, I, I have very limited access to internet, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, this morning I was just scanning media. I was doing a search, a Google search, unfortunately, uh, a time, you know, a date relevant to see like, okay, now it's three days after, is anyone aside from friendly media actually reporting on this? And because when I searched uh, yesterday, I, I didn't find anyone mentioning except that one Reuters article. And I was just like separate to say, okay, thanks for, right. thanks for putting that clause in because that just means like you, you should not believe what separatists say, Russian backed separatists nonetheless. But actually this morning um, I did see, I forget which media, but I did see a few corporate media mentions of the Mariupol maternity hospital. I, I don't believe they gave all the information. I think they played down the number of people killed in, in Donetsk that day, six people. Um, but they, I did see a few more mentions than I have had seen uh, in the day before. Um, but why? It's a good question. I mean, uh, I suppose one point could be there is uh, overwhelming evidence from here, you know, right. uh, from uh, primary. I mean, there's a lot of Russian, a lot of Donbass journalists that have reported. There are also Westerners that have been living here for quite a while. Donbass Insider, for one. There's a German journalist. Actually, I want to talk about her. If um, I, let me interject really quickly just to give you a little shout out here. This is this yeah. is what I think we tend to not pay attention to. And please don't lose your point. I, 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 I think it's important to recognize that your work, and play people doing what you're doing is probably why they were forced to report that, right? Because you're showing people what's going on. And at some point they can't, it looks pretty embarrassing even for them to not acknowledge the obvious data. So please continue. Well, thank you. I was I was kind of making that point, but of course I wasn't saying my work uh, exclusively or only or at all. Like, uh, I mean, it could be that my work was noticed. I don't know, but I, I just think there, there are enough uh, voices, uh, Western voices, uh, I hate to say, you know, you need Western voices corroborating Russian and, and Donbass voices, but it is because of the the racism and and like idiocy of of the West that sometimes 
it does help when you have Western, although then we're just labeled Russian, um, Russian bots and Kremlin agents anyway. But I think, I think it is the combination of so many voices here, uh, highlighting these crimes that, yeah. And, and like, um, I, I haven't, like I was just saying, I haven't had a lot of time on Twitter or social media, but, um, I, I, I know, um, I know, for example, Dmitry Polyansky, the, the, um, Russian representative to the UN and in the States, uh, in New York, um, I know he was tweeting, you know, about the hypocrisy of, you know, corporate media not highlighting the maternity hospital uh, being attacked. And I know just a number of people have also been addressing these sources, like the UN sources or media sources, like Western media sources, and saying, why aren't you talking about this? So you're probably right that at a certain point when they get enough people uh, retweeting and, and asking these questions, uh, then you're right, they're probably cornered. I mean, um, I'm trying to think, there was another example Um it wasn't. It wasn't related to Don Bass. Uh, it it might have been Siri related, but I mean, we've seen this kind of thing before. We're finally they're forced to acknowledge something, but they usually do it in a very sneaky way. Again, this Russian back separate to say or downplaying the 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 the, the, veracity, the sorry the scale of things. So, but I, I do want to make a point about. I mentioned uh, in passing a German journalist. Now, um, uh, before I forget. Now I'm not familiar with her work, and it's it's not because I it's not important work. It's just because I don't speak German. Um, but I am aware she's been here for I believe it's six months. Um, her name is Alina Lip, and uh, again I can't I can't say anything about her, the nature of her work, but I, I would have to say it must be pretty good because um, she has Germany has basically come after her and threatened if to imprison her for up to three years. And now thank you for pulling up that tweet, um, and and. In the video you can see in that tweet, she basically outlines a letter she got from German authorities saying, due to things that you've talked about, uh, you know, we're going to imprison you. And so, um, I, as I remember in her video, she's like, she, they, they cite some of the things she's talked about. So she's talked about the Russian military operation in Ukraine. Um, and just simply for mentioning that, for, for addressing the fact that it's going on. I don't believe she even, uh, I don't believe they even said you, you gave a pro, uh, or con, a pro, um, view on that. I think, I don't think they even said that in their letter to her, just the fact that she talked about it or something. Uh, anyway, the point being, uh, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's it's one thing to be on a kill list, and she's probably on it as well. Um, but to be threatened to be imprisoned because she as a journalist is here in a place that the whole media is whitewashing as they whitewash the Nazis in Ukraine and Ukraine's bombardment of, of this region. It's just so supremely ironic and, and, and ridiculous and, and horrific that she's being threatened with this. So um, I, I would like it if, I mean, I would encourage people to to check that tweet out, check her video out and, and, and support, retweet it, you know, maybe think of like writing something yourselves. Uh, she does need our support. And the thing is, it, I don't believe it will stop with Germany. I think it could be any, it could be Canada next for all I know it could be, but even if it's not, even if it is just Germany and, and this one journalist, it's not right. You know, it's I agree. It, it, what kind of world is this right? That she's being um, threatened with imprisonment for doing her, her job. Right. Well, and this comes down to some pretty fundamental questions about what is journalism and what is free speech and what, you know, the, the idea ultimately that it does, it, it, regardless of whether you think she's wrong, whether she is wrong, does she not have a protected right to report what she believes is happening? You know, and th this gets into that conversation about whether she intends to misinform. Well, now we're into this, this quagmire of assuming people's intentions, and that's childish and ridiculous. And there's no way you can prove these things, but that's their whole point, right? But see, I, I recommend, and I'll include all these as always in the show notes, to watch what she's talking about, listen to what she's yeah 
yeah. say. And what I find interesting is you as you scroll down and watch the comments around this, which as as you I, I think you point out in a different tweet that you know it's probably all bots these days anyway. But you know for the most part. But ultimately, what she's saying, or the comments are saying in one case is that well, she's calling this a a special operation. Therefore, everything else she says is called into question. And it's like it's there's an honest conversation to be had here about you know, whether or not this was in fact a war and invasion. And look, I've always said this was a, a, a war. It's what it is. I mean, people are at conflict there. That's what it is. But at the end of the day, what we're now beginning to see, and even the corporate media and even the government of the United States are beginning to passively admit that Putin did exactly what he said he was going to do. They literally ended up, and then we can talk about the state of the war in that, in this, in this part of the conversation about how ultimately, when it first started, it was this special, 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 excuse me, military operation laid out ultimately what his objectives were in regard to protecting the Donbass region and, you know, and, and everything else. And ultimately, now looking back, it seems that that's what happened. Now you could argue that there was attempts that were failed, and this is a cover-up, but this is all the same point intentions and assuming about what they ultimately right. think and so on. So you can, you can you comment if you have any more comments on this, please jump in. But then let's talk about, you know, what we're currently seeing and, and whether or not that is what ultimately happened. And I have a question about Kiev specifically, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So what, what is your, your perspective on the current state of what's happening in Ukraine in regard to whether the Ukrainian military is also losing, essentially failing and, mm. you know, and, and whether Russia ultimately is achieving what it said it was going to from the very beginning? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you pointed out that when people say, "Oh, Russia is failing because this or that," you're you're right. They are making assumptions that that that, that certain things were Russia's objective, like for example, taking Kiev. I know right. when I, I spoke with um, Larry uh, C. Johnson, former CIA, former State Department, um, it was a very interesting conversation with him. Uh, and he was he was uh, referring. And I hadn't been aware of this story, but he was talking about, for example, um, how media was making a big uh, a, a big to do about um, a, like a long column of Russian tanks uh, retreating from Kiev. And oh, look, you know, media was saying like, oh, they're out of gasoline, they're out of food, you know, they're they're losing. And he was making the point like they were sitting ducks. Uh, were the Ukrainian military a functioning military? These tanks should have been sitting ducks and being picked off, but they weren't being, you know, and, and he was also, he also made the point, you know, I believe he made the point, I don't want to misquote him, uh, that the intent, uh, well, again, this is his belief that the, and I, it jives with what I understand. The intent was not, of course, to take Kiev, but rather to draw forces away from the Donbass where the real mm. fighting's happening. Uh, I know, um, I believe that, like over 90% of Lugansk, the Lugansk People's Republic is in the, the hands of the Donbass, which was one of the objectives, you know, to return the the areas that Ukraine was controlling to the Donbass. So, uh, and there has been significant progress. I don't know what the percentage is in the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, so, so there's that. Um, but as for, you know, Russia's intentions, I, I also won't make assumptions about what their grander strategy was. But you, as you said, President Putin in his speech before it began, uh, so speech, was it on the 23rd and the operation began on the 24th? But anyway, he laid out the the, the um, objectives, which were demilitarization, denazification and, you know, restoration of, of peace to this uh, region. So, I mean, um I was just looking for something. That's why I opened my WhatsApp because I sent a message to somebody. Now, this is a quote from. Oh, OK. Um, I, I'm not aware of this guy. But anyway, uh, David Arak uh, Arakamia, uh, who leads Ukraine's negotiations, 
with negotiations with Russia, sorry, I'm stammering. Um, he said, I sent this, um, I think he said this yesterday. Anyway, he said 200 to 500 Ukrainian soldiers are dying each day in the Donbass. And the total uh, daily casualties, so that would mean uh, injured, reach up to 1,000. Um, and Zelensky, um, two weeks ago, put the death toll of 60 to 100. And I, who was I listening to? And they were saying kind of, so this is corroboration from a Ukrainian source, not from a Russian source, right, of, of, of the death toll. So uh, this is not rejoicing in Ukrainian soldiers uh, dying. Rather, it's just pointing out a fact that these claims that Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing are not reality-based, you know. Um, and unfortunately, Ukrainian soldiers are being used as cannon fodder. Like I was uh, in Mariupol today, and I didn't have, as I've said before, much internet. But when I did, I was scrolling through the various Telegram channels. And there was one of a soldier basically saying, like a Ukrainian soldier saying, we were thrown into combat. Uh, we had no training whatsoever. We were told we wouldn't be thrown into combat, but we were, you know, and this is why we're dying. This is one of the reasons why we're dying. Um, so... I think, yeah, I think Western media is, is doing not only like the Donbass people a disservice with their dishonest reporting, but also the Ukrainian soldiers, you know, or the, the people that are being collected and thrown into combat when they don't have the skills uh, to deal with it. So, yeah. And uh, gosh, you made a, a point about Syria earlier. What I what I what I also just want to say in relation to Syria is that we are seeing a repeat of so many strategies regarding um, media strategies and also regarding like tactics that terrorist groups in Syria used and tactics that Ukrainians are using, for example, the use of, of, of civilians as as human shields, um, mm -hmm. occupying residential areas, occupying schools and hospitals, militarizing them, firing from them even intentionally destroying them and then blaming Syria and Russia or here uh, blaming Russia and the Donbass forces. We're seeing that like, it's like copy paste being played out here. Exactly. And we're seeing the same uh, tactics in the media as well. Like the, the vilification tactics, the making up of stories, the drawing on unnamed sources or media activists. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's like for, for, for you and me and, and your, your, your viewers and people who followed Syria very closely, um, I think like the parallels are astounding of how things are playing out. I don't, I wouldn't even call it a parallel. This is the same playbook. I mean, this is the same yeah. play. I mean, that, yeah. this is what Whitney wrote about in, you know, Al the uh, Ukraine and the new Al Qaeda. And I've had similar conversations about just the new, you know, Syria 2.0 kind of, they're using yeah, the exact yeah. same. The only thing different here is that they're, it's in Ukraine and that they're using the Azov movement instead of Hayatir al-Sham or, or other, it's the yeah, same yeah, concept yeah. as you're just discussing. And it's very obvious. And this, it, 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 if you dig into our, our, the work we've done about this, I think it's obvious why it's the same agenda. It's the same effort to put Russia in a quagmire situation to draw out their resources. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, this is stated agenda. If you listen to people talking about it, CIA entities in the foreign policy magazine, they're literally discussing about this is what we're trying to accomplish. It's, it's, it's incredible mm -hmm. to me. But yeah. I want to I want to go back to uh, and but that's such an important point not to miss the overlap there and how we can see the same propaganda being applied. But going back to the whether or not this is going the way you know to, to Kiev specifically, I I've been really talking about this in regard to what what so Colonel McGregor has talked about this many times and said that the the agenda was never to do so, to, to do what they framed him as doing in regard to Ukraine going into Kiev and occupying the entire territory. And when you discuss the the uh, tanks 
and the situation. That was something I haven't heard before, that ultimately it was an effort to draw forces away from what they were trying to accomplish over here, which militarily, strategically makes a lot of sense. But yeah. from what you've seen, and I'm not, no, no assumptions, no, you know, that kind of stuff. But from what you've seen, does it seem, appear to you that the objective was ever to go into Kiev? Did they ever even go into Kiev from what you've seen? Because I, I have another question after that that I want to follow up with. Well, I, I can't speak to like what's happening in Ukraine because I'm not mm-hmm. there and I can't go there. So, but you know, one other point is that Russia is using a fraction of its military might. So, I mean, if if it really wanted to go into Kiev, it could have employed more soldiers. You know, could have right. sent a lot more might, and it could have done so very quickly. Who was it? Uh, I think it was both um, Andrei Martyanov, uh, a Russian um, military and, and naval expert, who I highly recommend people uh, listen to, because he he knows what he's talking about. He's not somebody who engages in crazy hypotheses. He talks about what he knows. He talks about strategies, and I'm I'm, I'm almost certain, um, if I remember correctly, that he talked about how this is one of the strategies Russia has used to draw forces away from the Donbass so they can then like semi-surround Ukrainian forces and eventually force them out or get them to surrender or whatever and then retake uh, areas of the Donbass. And also uh, Larry Johnson talked about that too in our interview. Uh, what was my point? So yeah, um, and I believe Larry also was speaking about, you know, again, the the, the, the fraction of forces Russia has been using in in. Ukraine. So I, I, I think the notion that they ever wanted to take Kiev is ridiculous um, because they could have done so if they wanted to. Right. Well, um, the reason I ask is because on the 25th, when this first started, there was multiple corporate news reports that were arguing that that had already happened, that they already invaded Kiev uh-huh. and they're all on the ground. And I've just seen uh-huh. absolute, I think that that was them jumping the gun, but based on what I've seen, that they, you know, thank you for your insight there. And I, I do want to clarify for people that may have been confused by that. And, and you're right to say that you're not in Ukraine, you're in, you're in yeah. the Donetsk People's Republic, but right. for people to understand you are in the, what, you know, what was considered Ukraine from before, just for people That's- that are hearing that and might be confused. You're, so she is in the Donbass region, correct? Yeah, the Donbass region. Right. And they declared uh, themselves autonomous republics. Uh, and now Russia has recognized that. And I'm not sure which other states have or have not recognized it. Uh, but, you know, one point I want to make, too, is that people need to understand why they wanted to be autonomous. And uh, my understanding from when I came here in 2019, and then that's been um, reaffirmed uh, since coming back multiple times, is that uh, they saw what was happening in 2014 in Kiev and in Odessa, where there was that horrific massacre in the trade union house. And they saw the rise of this like, this fanaticism, the, the Nazis and the extreme nationalists. And they didn't want that to come here. And so they, uh, my understanding was they, they initially just didn't want that. They wanted to distance themselves from that. And they also, as we've all probably said many times over now, they also wanted to retain their ability to speak Russian, you know, have it taught in schools. Uh, Which is and- an important point because that's been verified that they have, they on documentation, they were trying to stop people from being allowed to speak Russian. They've denied that in the media, but there's documentation yeah. for it. Yeah. And also they uh, they objected to, rightly so, the rewriting of history, you know, the glorification of Nazis, you know, and uh, criminalization of uh, the Soviet army that, you know, liberated these areas, including <laughs> Ukrainian areas from Nazis. So there are a multi- multitude of reasons they didn't want to be a part of Ukraine any longer. So, yeah, I think it is important uh, when people say I'm in Ukraine. I do like to point out, yes, it is uh, formerly Eastern Ukraine, but they are now autonomous republics. And uh 
Um, yeah, and it's 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 and I think too. Okay, now there is a good alliance with Russia, but for many years they were on their own. I mean, Russia was diplomatically trying to assist in in restoring peace, and that's another point we need to highlight, right? When when everybody says, "Oh, Russia invaded Ukraine," and this is unprecedented. Let's look at the last eight years, you know, of again, Ukraine's war on the Donbass, but also Ukraine's uh, violating, as we said earlier, of the Minsk Accords, you know, and refusal to come to any peace, any terms of peace uh, with with Donbass. So there's there's all that precedent before what happened in February 2022. Well, it's also a ridiculous thing to call it unprecedented when you have the government calling it that going from country to country, toppling different groups and regime changes and invasions and the U.S. government I'm talking about. Like, it's it's hardly unprecedented to see that happen, you know, if that's even the way it went down. You know, it's just this gross misrepresentation. Well, it's okay when they murder and bomb for freedom. You know, it's it's just all framing, you know, at the end of the day. And one more overlap with Syria and other discussions you've had in the past, and I wanted to highlight this at some point, just the fact that this is something we saw with with uh, Assad and the Syrian's government taking back certain territory. And then weird as life returned and things went back to normal despite what they claimed would happen, right? Well, if we allow them to take control, he'll kill everybody. And it's, you know, as this tweet you can see for those in the podcast, as she writes, while waiting for a flat tire to be changed, just entering Mariupol, public transportation is working. Life is returning to normal. And this is an area that is no longer in the control of the neo-Nazi elements. And as we pointed out, there is an endless stream of people that have been on the record with multiple different outlets from all sides of the discussion, admitting what was happening there, that they were being held, that they were being tortured and on and on and on. Right. So yeah. just people to remember that. Do you have any comments on that? I do. I do. I do. Um, so I'm not by any means trying to say there's not destruction in Mariupol. That's ridiculous. Right. Of course there is. But again, what the Western uh, media never gives the context of why, and I've already alluded to it before when I talked about how one of the tactics Ukrainians used was to occupy residential buildings, particularly upper floors. Even Vanessa tweeted a, a diagram of, of this tactic, like occupy upper floors, uh, stick uh, civilians on bottom floors, and in, in, in many cases, keep them, force them to stay in bottom floors floors Mm -hmm. and then uh, know that if they fire from those buildings if russia returns fire russia realizes they're going to be firing on civilians they don't of course they won't always know that there's civilians in those buildings and if fired upon uh my understanding is the military will fire back and and any source they're fired upon so unfortunately um you know uh, and there's of course countless testimonies taken by people like patrick lancaster um Maxim Grigoriam, he's a Russian uh, researcher who's done incredible work in Syria, taking uh, testimonies of civilians, former uh, terrorist members, former White Helmets members. And now he's doing similar incredible work in the Donbass, taking testimonies of civilians who can speak directly about, you know, their experience living under Azov and Mm -hmm. how they were kept as human shields, uh, prevented from leaving, prevented from accessing humanitarian corridors, just as happened in Syria under terrorist rule. Um, So, yeah, there is destruction in Mariupol and it it's it's very sad to see it's just like in Aleppo and like Homs there's a lot of destruction but for the same reasons it's not it I mean if people think logically why in the world would Russia want to just wantonly destroy buildings of its allies of people that identify as Russians why would they want to do that it's not logical just like it wasn't logical in Syria that the Syrian government would just want to destroy infrastructure it's going to have to rebuild right and who's going to be doing the rebuilding here? It's going to be Russia and allies and the Donbass and, and allies, of course. So it just logically doesn't make sense that they would intend to go and destroy buildings that they're going to then have to uh, rebuild themselves. So that's right. an important point. So, And the other thing is, yeah, Mariupol isn't perfect. It's not back 100% back to new. It takes mm-hmm. time. And unfortunately, you know, 
engaging in sanctions on countries uh, doesn't help places rebuild, just like Syria is. And I know Vanessa's spoken with you uh, probably at length about how Syrians are suffering incredibly now. Right. Uh, the war is okay. It's, it's still going on. Areas of Syria are still occupied by terrorists, by the U.S., by Turkey, by the Kurds. But uh, it's the sanctions that are really, really stifling people. And the economy is screwed through the combination of the sanctions, the 10, year, 10 plus years of war, et cetera. Um, and, and yet they are trying to rebuild. So again, uh, to people in the West that cry these crocodile tears about like, oh, Russia destroyed or Syria destroyed. If you want to help them rebuild, obviously you, you lift the sanctions. So clearly they, they don't want the rebuilding process to occur. But all, back to your point. Yes, uh, I did see public transportation working. I was back in Mariupol today. Actually, this is an interesting story. So I went with, uh, sorry, um, RT journalist Roman Kosarov. And now he's been doing really incredible uh, journalism, courageous journalism, but he's also, he's a huge empathetic uh, person. And so he's he's collected, uh, he told me yesterday, he's collected nearly $35,000 worth of rubles uh, to purchase humanitarian aid. And he's been taking it to hard hit areas of Mariupol and uh, other regions that have been liberated. Volnavaka, um, uh, many days ago, maybe almost a week ago, we went to, I don't want to say the name of the village, but it, it was about um, between one and three kilometers from Ukrainian forces. It's uh, southwest of Donetsk. And the reason we went there is that Roman had gotten a word that there were 50 or 60 elderly uh, living in this area that were in desperate need of, of food and basic humanitarian aid. So he wanted to bring that to them. So we arrived at this village. And uh, after we arrived, and by the way, going there, uh, parts of the road were risky because we were exposed to potential Ukrainian shelling. So basically, uh, we're just in a, in a, a van, so like no no tanks, no, no no soldiers. So basically, we're just gunning it down the road to get to, there's a monastery in the village. So we drove into the monastery, and soon after arriving, uh, shelling started. So everybody was sheltering in the basement of the monastery. And I think there are maybe 70 people living, uh, people like uh, monks and uh, monks from the monastery, and then locals living and sheltering there um, now due to the situation. Uh, we weren't able to get to the elderly, so we ended up leaving all the aid with the monastery, and they said they would get it to those people that were in need. But then uh, some days later, uh, Roman learned that uh, some of these elderly had already been evacuated to Mariupol, of all places. Sure. And so their story was apparently when um, when the military operation began, and when Russian and Donbass forces neared this area, Ukrainian forces fled and they left these elderly behind and they were in a care home. So some of them are invalids and unable to leave of their own accord. They were left behind and then Ukraine turned around and started shelling the region, including shelling this home. Which just, you know, if you've got a grandparent or an elderly uh, loved one, like I do in a care home, it's just like shocking to imagine that happening. I, you know, I can't even fathom thinking about my mom being left behind and then her home being shelled. That's what happened. Um, and then when Russian and Donbass forces found these people, they evacuated them to another care home in Mariupol. So they're there now. It's not ideal because they don't have water. They don't have electricity. Um, Russia did donate a massive generator, but it's broken down now. So Roman was taking food and, and, you know, medicines and stuff to them in, in this care home in, in Mariupol. But that's how we learned of this story of how, how they were evacuated from an area under Ukrainian fire back to Mariupol where it was safe. I mean, it's just like, you won't hear that in the media because, you know, exactly. in, in media, everything to do with Mariupol um, is Russian destruction. And by the way, uh, just while I think of it, 
uh, tomorrow I'll be going to a region of Mariupol where Russian sappers are demining uh, right. mines and explosive and booby traps left uh, behind by Ukraine. Then uh, I will emphasize this. This is another tactic that uh, terrorists in Syria did when they would leave an area. They would they would they would not only leave mines in the ground, but they would like place mines and booby traps behind um, in behind a refrigerator or behind a, a painting or like in houses right. so that they would inflict uh, they would kill more civilians when they tried to come to their homes. So this is now Russia's cleaning up Ukraine's mess. In spite of all the rhetoric we hear in the Western media, Ukraine left these mines and now it's up to Russian sappers to remove them. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, obviously I won't be too, too close, <laughs> but I will be at least able to observe this process, which I think is really important to emphasize. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to ask you one point about that. And then I want to finish off by talking about Azov specifically and, and the, what we're seeing, what you're seeing there. But the mines is an interesting point because that's another, another discussion of, of the fake news oh, in regard yeah. to how we've seen before. And I, I've, I've even, I've, so, I've cited them so just like with the burials. And this is how clumsy this all is, where they themselves lay out in corporate media discussions, you know, whether the Guardian and BBC from early on where they literally cite that they mine these areas because they're stopping Russian invasions. And then it flips around where they say Russia mine these areas to stop food from getting out. And it's yeah, verifiable. Yeah, yeah. You even have general Milley admitting early on that these were, it's just, it's, it's so frustrating to see how obvious this is. And so that is an obvious indication of them admitting and then lying about it in the corporate media. But then also that that is very interesting in how that directly affects the food supply issue or the yeah. grain that's being attacked, or the fact that they've bombed the grain on the ground anyway, just like we see entities doing that in Yemen and other places, and more over that. But yeah, exactly, and Syria as well, burning the wheat fields, right? I mean, it, it's it's a very interesting and obvious overlap. So if you, do you have any comments on that and the mines and the food supply? And it's a broad topic, but I want to give you a moment to comment before we finish off. Yeah, I just have some surface comments. I don't have mm -hmm. any direct, like, personal uh, knowledge of it, but um, I, I am aware, and uh, again, referring to Dmitry Polyansky, because he's always kind of on the ball with with these things, and, like, he, he's pointing out, because uh, I can't remember which, which Ukrainian or Western talking head is saying, oh, you know, all this grain uh, can't can't be ex exported from Ukraine and it's all Russia's fault. And he's like, he's pointing out what you've just re referenced, like, no, actually Ukraine mined the ports and Russia is completely willing to offer a safe route and to escort um, shipments out of there uh, if Ukraine is willing to, of course. So they're offering actually not, not only pointing out Ukraine has mined the ports, but saying like, look, we'll, we'll offer you safe passage. Uh, and, you know, you can have like, I can't remember what allied country of those Turkish ships or whatever, but they're, they're offering uh, an alternative plan for Ukraine to be able to export its grain. So, and then I didn't realize because I wasn't aware that Ukraine had previously admitted to mining the port. So that's, that's very yeah. interesting. Well, here, here's um, one example. Uh, if you, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, oh, just, just the other thing. Uh, I haven't visited it, but maybe two weeks ago, uh, journalists found uh, a storage of grain in Mariupol that had been burned. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know some of the naysayers are like, well, why are you only talking about this now? But um, I think, getting back to the demining it's it's most likely because it takes places to reach sorry it takes time to reach places precisely because the area has to be demined before you know you can you can find some of these things out yeah exactly
Yeah, this yeah. Uh, we were just talking about this in general that this was uh, you know and and you know we question everything as always but the, the the continuity of all the evidence that we've seen from the beginning again admitting that this is a situation they've created and lying about it makes it pretty obvious that this is something that relates back to the Ukrainian government and here was the point I was making this is one of many by the way General Milley is on discussing this himself in regard to how early on mines washing up from Ukraine uh-huh. right so you know it's, just, it's so embarrassing to watch but here's this was uh, India today one of the many that just lay out this just before we got to the point where they were blaming it on on Russia and the food supply issue, which simply points out as part of the military strategy and to avoid Russian naval invasion, the entire seawater was mined. And this this could tie back directly from statements being made by Ukraine, you know, before they were trying to hide this narrative. You know, this kind of stuff just gets so frustrating because it's it's obvious to see and it makes you wonder who they're actually aiming this stuff at. Right. If you can prove with their own previous reports that this is a lie, who are they aiming this propaganda at? I almost I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? It's an interesting (laughs) question. Well, I think they're aiming it at the general public who aren't going to notice that you have these contradictory previous reports. Right. Mm -hmm. The general public isn't. I'm not speaking of, of course, your viewers, but your average person who, you know, tunes in for 30 minutes of news or whatever a day. They're not going to know. They're not going to do the research. I mean, when you think about how outlandish, uh, not some, a lot of the propaganda around Syria was and people like, you know, you and me and our colleagues would be like, how can they even put this out? It's just so glaringly absurd. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like if they had the public believing seven-year-old girl in East Aleppo was tweeting, you know, dear Trump, you know, stop Holocaust Aleppo in perfect English uh, when she couldn't even answer later the question of an interviewer in Turkey, do you like, what kind of food do you like? And she answered, save, save the children of Syria. You know, if people were believing this girl, uh, you know, was a, an honest or a real voice coming from Syria, then uh, I mean, I don't have much hope for them seeing through the lies and the propaganda right now that, that you're saying like, well, there's a, there's a counter to it put out mm-hmm. by the same mm-hmm. sources. I tend to hope that they're, that we're being taken by a misrepresentation of that majority, but that's, that's a wishful thinking on my part. I, I, so I, I have yeah. no sense of, of what, where I, I will say this though. I have, uh, have over the years had people reach out to me and say, Hey, I used to think you were crazy, but I changed my mind, you know? So, um, or other people say like, Oh, along the same lines, like, well, you know, I believed this and then I saw this happen and I saw this happen. So now I don't believe media at all anymore. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, Step in the right direction. (laughs) But I mean, maybe you can speak more to how much of a shift there has been in in public trust or mistrust of media. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I I, I don't know if it's a shift and this comes to my kind of stance I've taken for a while or if we're just now admitting it to ourselves and seeing it more than we ever have. I'm in a mindset that we have had. And that's what 2016 was all about and before that people just don't buy this right now. We don't buy the media's arguments. We don't buy the propaganda. And I'm talking about what I I argue is like this kind of fluctuating 70 percent of just general people that don't vote one way this way, depending on certain topics. And they, all the media represents is the fringe left and right, the the the, the 15 percent on either side of it, that they act as everybody else. I don't know if I'm yeah. right about that, but I tend to I think what we're seeing more than ever is what you're saying right there is that we are seeing that whether it's a new shift or it's just seeing it you know, for the first time that people aren't buying stuff, whether it's COVID or Ukraine or whatever else. And I think that's a good, healthy thing. It doesn't, whether they're doubting a real story or not, skepticism in power is obviously a foundational part of any kind of free society, representative government. I mean, however you want to look at it. So it's, it's dire at this point that we lean into that question, everything, right? I mean, that's important. You know, I want to bring up, if I may, um, the NBC, um, Smear. Now, I, I don't, I'm personally not bothered by it because I, I don't care about the, these these media vultures. And uh, it named uh, 
12 influencers. It was such a funny term. Like, uh, uh, I was right, among like, you're like Instagram. So influencer, yeah. like, like, like they called you a blogger before. Yeah, right? <laughs> Always trying to undermine what you're doing, which is wildly important. That's why they're doing that. Go ahead. But the interesting thing about that, aside from just the absurdity of, you know, the whole like 12 influencers under the control of the Russian government and then swaying public opinion ourselves, because we're influencers aside from that. Um, and, and, and I, you know, when this creature reached out to me, I was like, oh, I know it's going to be the same stuff they've said about me regarding Syria. And it was actually it was funny, too, because she um, I think it was a she uh, she actually kind of outed her or, or ridiculed herself because she's like, you know, saying, oh, Eva Bartlett believes the white helmets are a propaganda campaign. I'm like, hello, 2022. You look like an idiot. <laughs> but um, but the, the, the point I wanted to make is not, not so much the smear, but the fact that, you know, they think you viewers and you who participate in, in Twitter are dumb. They think you're stupid. They think you're brainwashed. They think that you have no critical thinking skills, right? Because that's what the implication, like if you're so dumb that you're influenced by influencers, you know, and that's not the case, of course, you know, your viewers and, and people that are engaging on Twitter are people that have actually put some thought into this and they are thinking, they are asking questions and they are questioning a lot of things, you know? So it's just, I think it's incredibly rude to, uh, to say that not because of me, I don't care what people say about me, but, but because of everybody out there that is actually asking these questions, they're saying that you are dumb, you know, they're saying that you, you're not coming up with original thoughts. Right. And, uh, I was actually interviewed by uh, Russians with attitude podcast a couple of days ago. Now I can't remember how one of the guys phrased it, but it was really interesting. Like it uh, kind of along the same lines, like, um, by saying, you know, all Russians, you know, think this way, he, he was making the point, like, actually, most Russians are very skeptical of, of many things. They're skeptical of their government, they're skeptical of their media. And it was interesting to me, because I'm still like, I live in Russia now. Um, I'm still relatively new. I'm, I'm, I'm only picking up bits and bobs of the language. So I don't, I can't give an opinion on how Russians think, you know, so it was interesting mm -hmm. to hear it from them, uh, that, Russians themselves are very skeptical of the government and of the media. So, you know, this whole like uh, all Russians think this and like this is all Kremlin propaganda, but all Russians think this is just it's so contradictory. And, and it's just it's it's so like uh, immature, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's an insult <laughs> um, to our intelligence. Like what, what you're yeah, saying is that they, they treat, they're treating us like we're I mean, <laughs> the underlying implication in everything that's happening today is that we're too dumb to know what's yes, right for us, right? Exactly. Whether it's a great reset or anything else, well, you're just too stupid. Just do what you're told, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it's really, it is insulting. It really is. Whether it's Russians or Americans or anything else that, you know, that, uh, even to take that point specifically, think about how ridiculous it is to have a government that's that pretending to be a champion of, you know, ending racism and bigotry. And then you whitewash an entire country as one thing. Like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's inherently stupid. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's inherently contradictory. But and this is exactly my point about why I just don't believe that the average person can't see that. I, I think that most of them see it and acknowledge it and are skeptical, but a lot of them see it and just don't care because they've chosen a political side. And that's that 15% point where it's just like, yeah. well, it doesn't matter because blah, you know, I've taken this, it's team sports today in politics, you know, yeah. but to your point, it is insulting and we should feel yeah. that way. Um, Ryan, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for you to have, or to you for having me on, but I've got to get going. Oh, shoot. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have time for one last question? Uh, I need to get okay. going. Okay. I'm okay. Well, unfortunately, well, thank tomorrow. you for joining us, Eva. It's always a pleasure yeah. to speak with you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you so much. And, maybe, and uh, maybe there. in a week or two, when I have a bit more time, we can chat again. Absolutely. I would love that. Okay. Thank you. Well, talk to you soon.
Well, I'll, I'll wrap up here, guys, by, by pointing out a couple of things in regard to what we were going to discuss, the uh, the Azov Battalion kind of overlap. But you know that I've discussed that at length, and we've gone over that in depth in a lot of different ways. But really what I was going to get into with her in general at the end was the conversation about what she's seeing on the ground, about the 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 obvious influence that is wielded by these nationalist militias or however they want to frame it. And I'll be sure to include some of our conversations about you know, what, what Whitney Webb has covered and what we've discussed. And uh, we'll be make be sure to connect with Ava Bartlett again and, and, and touch base on what's been happening on the ground. But very important stuff. It's just incredible to see the contrast between what we're being told is happening and what somebody who just cares to look, go on the ground, speak to the people they're framing in the corporate media to find out that it is a completely different reality. Now, and as, as always, guys, question everything. Don't just take this at face value. Do your due diligence. Look at the source material we provide. Look at the previous conversations. Look at other people discussing what she's discussing. Look at other people challenging what she's saying. And weigh the evidence. Come to your own conclusions. It's just being smart. I didn't mean to point at myself. I mean, just being smart. Thank you all for being here today. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.